Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Well, here we are on the 30th episode. Happy 30th birthday, Mark. And the same to you, Michael, although you have not even had your real 30th birthday. I'm I'm approaching it fast. How are you? Well, we're going to find out how I am, aren't we, Michael, shortly? (laughs) Yes, because our guest who we teased, uh, and you'll probably know already, because there's no point in dragging this one out because it's on the title of the episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely thought I was serving up a beautiful reveal then, but I do remember the previous 29 episodes have had the name of the guest on all the artwork. (laughs) Famously. This week, I had a lovely conversation with Mark. It was really lovely. It's quite long, but we think it's really great. And it was nice to just sit down and talk a bit more seriously. And I hope you enjoyed it too, Mark. Uh, I definitely did enjoy the chat a lot. I don't know whether I feel as if it was great, whether I said everything that I wanted to say or whether I regret any of it, because it's too a little bit too fresh, really, to know that. But I do think that I'm pleased that we did this, and I'm looking forward to grilling the hell out of you one day. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear what you all think about it. But for now, let's listen to the lovely, incomparable handsome Mark Watson. Well, today it's bizarrely just me introducing this podcast because I'm introducing my co-host, who is Mark. Hello, Mark. Yes, I'm the actual guest. I'm not sure I'll be able to treat you any differently, I'm afraid, but I'll do my best to make you feel as special and comfortable as possible. I don't think I want to be treated differently. I think I want to go through the same uh, rigorous process that all of our previous guests have gone through. (laughs) I'm not sure they'd call it rigorous, but... uh, I'm not sure sure either, but that's what we're saying. (laughs) How are you? How are you doing? All right, thank you, Michael. I'm slightly daunted by the prospect of being in the hot seat. I reckon I'm just going to sort of hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope the first answer is convincing. The first question, as you know, that we ask is a memory of that first brush with masculinity. When do you first remember feeling or seeing what masculinity looked like? Now, I've had a think about this. I've sort of had a rummage through my mental archives and I do have an answer to this. There are actually two incidents which must have occurred about six months apart, I reckon, in my first year or maybe second year of school, but very early on in primary school. So I'm five or six years old. And these episodes are, in my head, sort of tied together. So the first one is being in the toilets, the boys' toilets at um, infant school, and very recently gathered the confidence to use a urinal, like stand there and and have a wee like a big boy. And I, I was doing that. And another kid, a boy, has certain status in the class. I remember he came in stood next to me at the urinal. And then there was a specific moment when he turned himself to face me 
and then just did a wee all over me. And, oh, um, that, wasn't, that wasn't where I thought that was going to go. <laughs> in 1985, it wasn't where I thought it was going to go either. <laughs> he did it. He just sort of pissed all over me. Uh, and there was just a moment where we looked at one another as if to say, right, that shouldn't happen. And, um, <laughs> and of course, the teacher had to be called. I had to be found dry clothes. There was no explanation. It was just one of those things that happened. But I had friends that were girls who were both called Sarah because it was the 80s. And almost all girls, all girls were called Sarah at this point, all boys were called James. And um, one of the Sarahs said to me, in a very matter-of-fact way, well, if that was girls, that wouldn't happen because girls sit down on the toilet. And I, I thought, right, that's good intel because I, I, I would like to make sense of, of what's happened here. Um, and then about, I reckon it's, a, it's in the same school year or, as I say, very soon afterwards, we had to go swimming. We had swimming lessons at school and we went to this freezing cold Victorian style swimming pool. The temperature of pool that you only go to at school, I reckon. Right. No adult voluntarily visits a pool like that. It was proper old school, freezing cold. And I don't know if you're old enough to have seen pools with this configuration, but at the time it was quite common. There weren't proper changing rooms. There were just a series of cubicles that ran along the yeah, sides no, of the pool. Yeah, ours was right? like that, yeah. Okay. So you had basically men on one side of the pool, women on the other side, and a series of cubicles. And they weren't even proper doors. There was just a curtain that you could pull across. And I remember that because the mean boys used to just occasionally rip your curtain aside so that everyone could see you changing. And there was this one occasion where, for whatever reason, I went the wrong way. So I was heading for the women's cubicles. And the woman who worked there, I do remember very specifically her saying to me, like almost violently, you can't come in here. These are the girls' ones. You have to go over there. And it was a real, a real moment. And I was never in trouble at school, certainly not at that level of school. I was quite a kind of teacher's pet. So I was really shaken to have been spoken to in that way. And when I thought about it later that evening, I tried to piece together what had happened. In what way had I transgressed? I'm sure by then I was aware that the boys and girls were sort of anatomically different from each right. other. And I'd probably seen my mum in the bath and stuff by now. So I knew that women had certain bits which were different and that was why there were different changing rooms. But of itself, that didn't seem like that big a deal to me. So I couldn't understand why it had been spoken about like a catastrophe that I'd nearly, you know, got into. And for a long time, it sort of haunted me. Why would it have been such a terrible thing? Because I look back on that moment and think, almost from that moment, I've had lots of girl friends, close relationships with women. I've always loved women, basically. I think partly because I respond to the idea that they are different from me. And of course, we, we use men and women very loosely on this podcast. Yes. I do understand that there are an enormous number of increments in between and lots of people have, you know, the gender is much more vague and less binary than it appeared to me in the 80s. I suppose what I'm saying is I've always been not just inclined to, but driven to have relationships with women because they represent something different from me. But I can also see how a lot of misogyny comes from the fact that if from a very early age you're told, well, the women go over there and the men are here and this is your mm. patch and that's their patch, you can see how to a different type of man, women become the other, the enemy quite easily. And the so, spaces are set up in opposition to each other, aren't they, in that situation? Exactly. So I think that the current trend of moving away from that on the whole is positive because the more boys are schooled to think girls, women, feminine identifying people are not so different from you, I think the better it is. I think that the extremely polarised way of looking at boys and girls that my education included probably does not 
encourage a healthy relationship between men and women. I've got some questions already, but I want to quickly go <laughs> directly into the toilet thing. So I don't use urinals, not for fear of being weed on, but like I find there's politics at a urinal. There's a lot of unspoken social rules in using urinals. Yes, I think a lot of men or, you know, people with, uh, well, dicks find them quite... Um, disconcerting to use for all sorts of yeah, valid and like, reasons, yeah. And it's very strange. And I think people who don't use urinals might not know this, but when you go in, there's a set of rules. You have to either go to the left or the right side, never the centre. But then every so often, someone with a real power move will come and stand right next to you at a urinal. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I do, because all of these rules are unspoken, of course. No one ever teaches you exactly how to. Well, exactly. So know. when do we learn that? Is it for fear of being urinated on by a five-year-old? or? Oh, well, I don't think that is a common experience. I think that's a sort of <laughs> outlier. In, in a way, this feeds into a lot of the conversations we've had about masculinity, actually. Many of the ways that you behave as a man or as a masculine person, many of those codes are not things which are ever given to you, like Moses with the commandments. They're just things that you gradually understand are expected of you. Right. And male toilet etiquette is a good example, I suppose. No one ever says to you, oh, leave one to the side of you because it's polite. You just, and sometimes you can't anyway. And, and I do think this is a core motif of all the chats we've had so far. When I asked about your first memory of masculinity, your first memory is of anatomic, oh, that's hard to say, anim biological difference. <laughs> Anatomical, <laughs> um, is that what you were after? That was what I was trying for, but yeah, I thought I, biological worked as well. The they both way. work, we're fine. Right. Do you have a memory that's not focused on, in terms of kind of, how a man or a boy should be. Okay, well, firstly, although those memories are about biological differences, they also do... They fed the behaviour. They definitely fed the behaviour because, right. you know, it, it implanted in my head the idea that women are different from me in some essential way, which must go beyond the biological, because right. why would you care that I can go into this cubicle or not? There was a mystique around femininity for me from a very early age, which I think was fed by these moments where someone said, women go in there, you cannot go in there. But in terms of the wider question of boy behaviour, we've had a lot of guests on the podcast who had almost exclusively female friends when they were at school and they were queer in the end and it was a, this was a pointer perhaps. And then we've had other people who felt shoehorned into a version of masculinity and later on they rebelled against it. And I don't think I'm really either of those. I definitely had both boy and girl, to use the terms, friends throughout school, really. So I'm trying to think of a time when boy behaviour was, to be honest, it might be as late as late on in primary school, we had those lessons that my 11-year-old son is now having where the girls get taken into a different room and you get lectured about how your bollocks are going to grow and you shouldn't get anyone pregnant and the girls get told about periods and all that stuff. That's age 10, 11. Again, these are biological differences. But once again, that was one of the first times I remember thinking, right, so the fact we've been segregated for this lesson suggests that the two sexes are seen by society as two completely separate enclaves. So if your friends are mainly girls, how was that socially with the boys? Were you seen as different for that? Or did you sort of fit in with both? I was fortunate that I did kind of fit in with both. We've discussed before on this podcast that I was not much of a sportsman. Not like, who was it, Riyadh in the first one, talking about he was made to be a goalpost. That wasn't Riyadh, Mark. That was me. Thank you for oh, bringing sorry. that up. <laughs> you were made to be a goalpost. Riyadh's thing was the fear of booting the ball back, wasn't That's it? That's the one. So I was never at that level. I was a competent player of boy sports, but never very good. But because I knew about sport and could not just hold but dominate a conversation about sport. I had my place with it. And not just sport, but I was reasonably comfortable in boy circles while also having friendships with girls. And I've thought a bit over the past week about 
what I can contribute to this podcast. The answer I came to is this podcast is such an inverse of society. Like our norm is queerness and problematic relationships with either your parents or your sexuality or your friends or whatever. So in a way, I think what I represent here is I'm one of the few guests we've had that did have a reasonably privileged relationship with themselves as a man, as a boy, as a, I, I was, this is not to say that I didn't have any traumatic episodes or difficulties in the negotiation of gender, but I, in a fun way, I represent the other that we often talk to guests about. I was one of those guys that was basically fine. <laughs> yeah. Again, I was quite a sensitive boy. I certainly wasn't very blokey or aggressively masculine, but I was reasonably comfortable with both boys and girls and with who I was. And that puts me into quite a rare category in the history of the Mankind podcast. So hopefully that's got a value in its own right. You were really into sports when you were younger, but you weren't necessarily amazing at sports. Did that feel like a frustration? Certainly the extent to which it did make me feel less of a boy, less of a man, was very specifically about physical strength, I think. I was comfortable with not being that good at football or cricket or rugby because I understood the games. I always knew that I was never going to be a famous sports person, however much I loved sport. I did a podcast with Rhys James, a comedian last year called Early Work, where you read out poems or stories that you've written as a kid. Mm. And he got me to find a couple of stories that I wrote as a kid. There's a series called Mark and Heather, where I went around having adventures with this Canadian girl called Heather, who I had met as a very small boy. So there's a book called Mark and Heather. I say a book. These are relatively short works. <laughs> Eight to 12 pages of old-style computer papers stapled together by my dad. <laughs> so there's one called Mark and Heather where we go back in time. Mark and Heather travel through time. And in that one, we go back to the Garden of Eden. I'm six or seven writing this. And the story goes that I'm basically overwhelmed and I faint and I have to be brought back by Heather to the present day. So I'm by no means the hero of that story. And then I wrote one where I get to be a cricket star. But again, I don't play that well. <laughs> I do an average job and we just about win, but it's not very good. <laughs> Hauntingly realistic, six-year-old, defensive. Very much so. Even in my fantasies as a six or seven-year-old, I'm still not that impressive. <laughs> you said lots of men think that if not for one thing, they could have been a professional footballer right. or a sports star. And that's kind of sat with me because I think it's completely true and it has helped me kind of understand, especially at the moment when there's the Euros on, a little bit more of the kind of the passion that's behind it. But I suppose you're saying you never really thought there was one thing. You thought there were a fair few obstacles. In yes, the way. I did. Because it's not true that there was just one thing that stopped them. In most cases, it's just that the level of talent you need to be a professional footballer or an opera star or a gymnast or a TV presenter, whatever it is, is a level of skill that is extraordinarily rare. And mm. all the men walking around going, oh, I could have done that. I mean, some of them are unlucky, but most of them couldn't. I think basically I came to an understanding of that early in life. So I never felt as if I was being robbed of anything. But what I did mind, and this is important, I think, in terms of my masculinity journey, I was very weak physically. Like I was very, very scrawny. I'm still regarded as being quite scrawny. But at the time at school, between the ages of about nine and I'd say 15, I was sure I didn't have a growth spurt relatively late in adolescence and I was very very skinny so I had a lot of nicknames like stick insect or um it's not particularly inventive is it really so overall boys are not brilliant well do you know what I had channel 40 which I thought was quite good as a surname channel 40 is that sort of dig as in chakraverti channel 40 and I've got a square head like a tv oh I see I'm just trying to work Mm. out because in our generation channel 4 has never been well it's a bit of an insult now because their main thing now is they've ditched all of their (laughs) 
uh, <laughs> original comedy commissioning in favour of stealing uh, formats <laughs> like Taskmaster and, of course, the Bake Off. I don't think at the time you were at school, Channel 40 was much of an insult. There were racist ones, but that's probably not fair. Well, that's the thing. All I had to deal with was... I remember once in science, when I was about 11 or 12, I guess, early secondary school, we did a science experiment where you had to kick against a set of scales, basically, and you had to see how much you could make the scales move. And it wasn't meant to be a test of strength. It was about the science. It was about you know how much energy you would used and whatnot and how much water you've displaced. It was all about that sort of thing. But I kicked against it extremely weakly. And the guy called Richard, I can still remember him, who was doing the recording of the scores, looked at mine and said, I mean... It's as if you didn't even kick it, you're so weak. And um, I did feel that quite strongly. I, di- I didn't mind not being great at Ironically, sports. felt it quite strongly. I, I felt strongly my lack <laughs> of strength, yeah. <laughs> but I do remember feeling very passionately that I minded being physically weaker than other boys. I minded the fact that people said that I was skinny and didn't have any you know, muscles and stuff like that. So the closest I came to a sort of I am not very masculine trauma in early life was looking in the mirror thinking, when will I be more muscular? When will I be but the, bulkier? So the, do you think the pragmatism came from your family? I think some of it is that, yeah. I was very fortunate to have, and in a way, I suppose this feeds into the traditional role model question, although we'll come to that. One of the best things that my dad did for me was he saddled me with very few expectations other than he wanted me to be academic because he knew that I was clever. He wanted me to make the most of the uh, skills that I had, but he never made me feel as if I had to achieve any specific thing in my role as a son, a boy, mm. whatever. Quite a lot of the people we've spoken to on this podcast were made either explicitly or as a byproduct of whatever the relationship was with the parents. They were made to feel as if they had to achieve certain things or enact or perform certain aspects of masculinity. I never had that really. The interesting side, I think you have a brother who is very into his football, so much so, right? He coaches it, I believe. Was well, there competition there? Well, it's interesting. My brother has been a coach, has been a, a footballer at Kuala Lumpur, and is now a kind of journalist and certainly is even more immersed in sport professionally than I am because I'm just sort of a hobbyist. There was very little competition between us because we are a very tight pair of siblings. I'm very close to all my siblings. So there's my brother, Paul, and the two sisters. My brother and I play games all the time. I taught my brother to play sports and then he became much better than me at tennis, football, basically everything. But But how does that feel when you're younger? this is the thing. I didn't mind. I really didn't. We would have fights sometimes. I remember playing cricket with him. One time he was out. You know, the ball hits the stumps, you're out. And he turned, faced the stumps, the wicket, and with his bat, just smashed them to pieces and then stormed off into the house. He was quite into dramatic gestures of anger, my brother. He had that mercurial sportsman's temperament. But we sort of didn't mind if the other one won. We had enough love for each other or whatever it was. So even now, I still, and we don't get many opportunities as adults, as both parents, but I'll still meet up with him and occasionally we get to play pool or darts or you know some game. I always want to win, but if he wins, and it sounds really sappy, I suppose, but a part of me is pleased at how good he is and I like to see him triumph. I like, you know, we were raised to be competitive in a sporty way, but not to undermine each other with competition. And again, I think that comes down to the fact that my dad taught us to play games in a way where he said, if you win, that's great. Just do your best. Do your best every day. That's all you can ever do. Many dads have said that to their kids, but it really did hit me hard at the time. I still look back on it because it meant so much to me because I knew that I wasn't going to be outstanding at everything. I knew that I would face disappointment and failure, but he still made the effort to say, your best is good enough. One of the things I've realised in the course of this podcast is that not everybody 
had that privilege. Not everyone just had their dad say, you know, have a have a go. I was raised not to fear failure because I wasn't ever judged for any sort of failures, either failures of masculinity or failures academic. And yet I do, as you know, put immense pressure on myself and judge myself extremely harshly for failure. Oh, we're coming to that, Mark. But I want to split our middle question into three here. Okay. Because I want to ask about your role models then, specifically then. And I'm going to ask about them probably later on during the podcast as well. But when you were younger, who did you look up to? I mean, your dad seems like a really amazing role model, like a, a man we could do with more of in this world. But were there any other people? We've talked about how the very notion of role models is potentially flawed. Right. We, like we've talked about that on this podcast before because we've had guests that have said, well, I don't think you should copy anyone else. You should be yourself. Was it right. Vincent? We had someone who said my role model yeah. was me. And I thought, Christ, I, I, loved wish, I wish I had that sort of self-possession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were loads of sports people that I loved, like say Gary Lineker, who is now, you know... Um, of the Walker's Crisps. Best known to you as a Walker's Crisps salesman. But he, he was the sort of the, the prime footballer when I was 10 or 11. And, you know, someone you could look at and think, ma, I'd love to be that guy. Was it to do with their sporting achievement rather it, than who they were It as a was person? to do with their achievement, yeah. But right. also, again, because I didn't think I could be that, they weren't really role models for me. They were sort of, you know, abstractly heroes to me. I said, oh, I love this footballer. I love this team. But I didn't look right. at those guys and think that could be me. Because again, I sort of knew it couldn't be. And if anything, what I wanted was to be an author, a writer. And the writers that I knew were sort of Ina Blyton, who... I read Ina Blyton when I was younger. We all did. And uh, these days she's seen as being problematic in various ways. But she was a hero to me because of the 70 books I'd read at a certain age, 55 of them were by Ina Blyton. I even wrote a fan letter to her at school when you had to write... Was she alive then? No, but I didn't know that. (laughs) I got a letter back saying, Enid is delighted with your letter. Thank you very much. Keep reading the books. Please enjoy the books. And I thought, this is a bit impersonal. And I think about three years after that, I realised she had been dead for some time. And I (laughs) I did feel slightly disillusioned then with the idea of writing to a hero. (laughs) Years later, in secondary school, I wrote a letter to Nelson Mandela as part of an amnesty push. And again, he didn't get back to me. So I I do wonder. In teenage, I was reading Agatha Christie. And also, I liked sports that were not purely male sports like I like tennis and I fancied Steffi Graf so she was my sporting hero probably before your time as well Steffi Graf was a phenomenally talented German tennis player who dominated uh, women's tennis in the 90s before the advent of the Williamses before the Williamses Graf was your girl and I fancied her a lot it wasn't just fancy to her. I thought she was a great player. Her forehand was unparalleled. So I suppose what I'm saying is, at every turn, I've had as many female figures that I looked up to as male. The concept of fancying is interesting to me. because Well, I said that very glibly. No, I mean more in terms of, I've never spoken to a straight person about this before, probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassingly straight. <laughs> <laughs> when you're kind of growing up and you're kind of going to puberty and you're starting to get interested in girls, and there's a lot of lad culture around girls when you're growing up and things. Yeah. What's it like as a straight person beginning to date? Because you were already quite pragmatic, but you're also quite sensitive, I suppose is the word. And how was negotiating that world as a teenager for you? Well, I don't suppose I've ever talked about this really, but basically I um, I suppose, of course, there was a, a laddy culture of talking about women, mm. talking about the tits, talking about that. Even when you're 16, 17 and you're not physically matured or developed yourself there was still this kind of the people you were meant to fancy were i know at the time it was people like kim basinger or sharon stone movie stars that are hopelessly distant to you now but then also Mm. there'd be girls in school that you were meant to fancy and there was a way of talking about them that i did not subscribe to that i found alien to be so i did not have girlfriends for most of my 
adolescence. I had girls who were friends. I was your archetypal boy in an indie movie that is friends with the girls, but they don't see him in that way. But what did that do um, to you socially? Because not it, having girlfriends is a sort of... Yeah. It marks you separately, doesn't it? It was definitely tricky. It did mark me separately. Like I had a friend called Jenny, who I was very good friends with, the ages of 15, 16, 17. And she went through a series of boyfriends. And even with hindsight, I remember thinking, hmm, I'd be a better boyfriend to you because I love you, but I'm not in that category. We did lessons together. We talked about personal stuff. But for those very reasons, I was not earmarked as boyfriend. You could either be the sensitive confidant of girls, or you could be the boyfriend. And I, I was definitely in the confidant camp. So I had three or four friends in whose lives my role was to advise them on bad boys that they were keen on, but I was never the guy that got a go myself. And I definitely thought up to the age of about 17, so almost university age, I thought because I form emotional relationships with girls, I am destined not to have actual romantic relationships with them mm. because all sex not even sex, all physical stuff, kissing, getting off with people, making out on sofas at parties, all of that seemed transactional in a way that I couldn't reconcile with what I wanted, which was to get to know people and chat to them. <laughs> if you were the sort of man or boy that I prematurely was, who liked the idea of forming intense psychological relationships with women, you really did have to sit out sixth form up to university. Yeah. Because that wasn't how it worked. It happened at parties, at nights out, you weren't having chats. You were just racking up the body the stats. Yeah. You said you stopped feeling lonely at university and you kind of found your tribe. And I know you're still really good friends. People like, lots of people will know Key and, and Horn and people like yeah. that. But um, what was finding that tribe like for you? Well, it took me a while. The first couple of terms at university, I felt very overawed by the experience. Even at university, at least half of my most important friends were women. And that's been a pattern throughout my life. So I still didn't have a male tribe. I tell you when it started to change. And this is maybe a nice moment of kind of anti-masculine bravado was maybe the third term of my first year. So we've been there a while now and there is still, there's a lot of posturing of like, oh, I'm having a great time. I've got so many mates. I love it here. And we came back for the final. I felt really sad because I'd enjoyed my holidays back at home, hanging out with my brother, all this kind of thing. I remember seeing this guy that I didn't know that well, Welsh guy called Steve. I, I said, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Whatever. And the guy said, in this pronounced valleys accent. He said, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, absolutely grim to be back here, isn't it? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And I started to find the tribe that I found. This is not Key and Horn. This is pre them. But the, right. the, the people I bonded with in my first year ultimately were people that were prepared to admit, ah, I'm not having a great time here. I find this quite intimidating. And by my final two years at Cambridge, I felt much more self-possessed because I felt like, all right, I'll do the th stuff I want to do. I think at any university, not just Oxbridge, wherever you go, you need to understand that your university experience is purely about you and the path you want to follow. And it yeah. took me a long time to do that. But once I'd done it, I was free. And so my second and third years of university were blissful, really. And that culminated in my third year. I meet Tim Key. I met two or three very important people. I began to do comedy. I was also much better academically because I was more confident. I was following. All of these things came about because by the final year of university, I was for the first time in my life just behaving as myself. That's quite an amazing thing to kind of come out of university thinking and doing. So I think lots of people come out of university still not quite sure um, yeah. where they are. But you were kind of, you feel really confident, although you were performing comedy in a different accent. We've spoken about that a bit before. <laughs> where did the Welsh accent and comedy come from? Well, I had Welsh family. I had plenty of Welsh roots and stuff like that. 
It's actually not that complicated. I was a big fan of these Welsh bands, the main one being the Superior Animals. I knew I could fake a Welsh accent based on my family and these bands and the amount of time I'd spent immersed in Welsh culture. And so when it came to first doing comedy, I did it in a a sketch show where I played a character who was Welsh and nobody questioned that. In fact, my comedy baptism was playing a version of the Grim Reaper that was Welsh. I feel a lot more comforted by a Welsh Grim Reaper, I think. I had to go around and point at people going, it's your time now, come with me. You're right, like Welsh is a lovely accent to take you to the... warm and comforting, yes. So when it came to doing stand-up, I thought, let's try it in that persona. There was no plan, really. I just did it and it became successful. And suddenly I've done four or five years of stand-up as a Welsh. But it all came from the fact that I thought stand-up feels like quite an aggressively masculine thing too. It certainly felt like it then because I hadn't seen much comedy. And so my image of the stand-up was a guy in a shirt going, so uh, my wife, all this. And I didn't feel like I could subscribe to that. So my shortcut to giving stand-up a go was let's create this persona that's quite different from myself but I'm still talking like me. I'm still saying stuff that I think. I'm just doing it in a different accent. It was a way for me of freeing myself of the expectations of alpha stand-up, basically, because it made me into a sort of lovable underdog. And I persisted with that for quite a long time. I think you'd probably say you persisted to this moment. Probably, yeah. I'm still talking my actual voice now, but I think... Yeah, how did you come out? Well, there was a point where I was just... I never expected it to become as successful a shtick as it was. And then suddenly I'm going on TV chat shows and stuff, still keeping up this Welsh accent. And people were giving me lifts home from gigs and I was having to continue the voice for three, four hours. <laughs> and then the straw that broke the camel's back was I was invited to a dinner for young Welsh achievers. And, uh, <laughs> oh, no. and I did go to it because I wanted the dinner at that oh. point. If you could get a free meal, you'd do it. But everyone there was speaking to each other in Welsh and I thought, well, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and dropping it wasn't that important to the audiences. But for me, it was a big thing. And when I convinced myself I could do comedy as myself and it became more and more natural, I crossed a sort of psychological Rubicon when you think, okay, so actually, I don't have to pretend to be someone else. I can do this as me. But that took ages. That was years and years. How did you negotiate that? Because that's quite a competitive environment to be working in. Like most comics, I was years into my career before I started giving myself the latitude to talk about emotional territory because you just don't have space to do that early in your comedy Mm. career. And to come back to the role models question, kind of at that stage of your life, who were you kind of looking up to in terms of people that you admired, I suppose? It's hard to know, really. There were a lot of comedians that I enjoyed watching. By now, I was a friend of Tim Keyes, and I I enormously admired his sort of fearlessness on stage. Because I was friends with people like Tim, and I learned that it's possible to be self-deprecating and funny about yourself without actually being cruel to yourself. And that's something which I've tried often unsuccessfully to do throughout my adult life. I have a tendency to be self-deprecating in a way which bleeds into an actually negative conception of who I am, I think. Yeah. And men that I look up to, I'd say, are men who are humble about themselves, can joke about themselves, can find themselves ridiculous or funny, but don't allow that to eat away at their sense of who they are. I think the, one of the problems with me is that I've got such a keen sense of myself as ridiculous or inferior that the jokes crystallise into an actual negative conception of myself quite easily. Someone like Tim, to give just one example, or even Tim Minchin, who is a very high-status man, but he's another example of a male friendship I've had. Both of those Tims are people who can make endless jokes about themselves, but they still have a core of self-belief, which stops those jokes from becoming anything more virulent. And I, I don't have that, I think. 
jokes I make about myself probably are to the actual detriment of my actual self-regard because I don't find that an easy tightrope to walk. Most of my jokes about myself are at the genuine expense of my self-esteem. Yeah. Not something I've ever said before, but I think that probably is true. How do you negotiate that? I don't know, Michael. I mean, a certain amount of self-effacement is quite appealing. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you worry for the person. You want them to love themselves more. And even at this stage of my life, which is, as I keep saying on stage, late 30s, so uh, 41, (laughs) I haven't really come to a healthy negotiation over that, I don't think. I think I still tend to veer towards being cruel to myself in the belief that that will make me either more appealing to other people or that it's a truer reflection of who I am. Or I think my natural default assessment of myself is very harsh and I've derived a lot of comedy out of that, but it isn't a very restful brain space to live in, probably. I think it's interesting to think, we've spoken quite a lot about how you were quite a pragmatist when you were younger and fairly confident in your ability and confident in the limits. It seems that there was a shift somewhere. Does that seem true? I think as I've got older, I've become much more able to reflect on my relationship with my own brain and my relationship with my own self-regard. And I'm old enough now to understand that there are problems with that, that there are things that need addressing in the way that I see myself and who I am in the world. But uh, Do you address them? Well, (laughs) not really. I mean... I'm now in the process of looking for a therapist and trying to undertake that work on myself because Mm. it's often said about men that they don't do the work on themselves and certainly men of my age that they're too set in their ways or too scared of whatever self-reflection is required to do it. I don't want to be that person, so I will do it. I'd say you self-reflect perhaps more (laughs) than is necessary. But not with any professional guidance. I'm just doing it in my spare time. You couldn't say I don't do the work, but you could say the work is not Not guided. Yeah, I understand that I'm shooting in the dark a bit in terms of how I manage my own brain. Yeah, I don't know. It's a problem. I talked to Tim Minchin, the very famous Tim, about how I could see myself as a whole person, a person of value in the way that he instinctively does now. I was saying basically, you know, if I'd done what you'd done, of course I'm fit. And he said, it's not about that. It's a, the phrase he used was wiring problem. It's a wiring problem. You've just, you just got a wiring problem. Your brain just does, uh, your brain is just wired wrong. You need to, and he was right. He was right. There is no objective standard of achievement or attainment which would free me of, the problems that are in my brain because those problems are they're not independent of objectivity i feel good when stuff goes well for me but there probably is a more intrinsic problem to do with my relationship with what i think i'm worth you've spoken a little bit publicly about a bit of a dip in your mental health maybe five ten years ago was that the first time you'd sort of experienced a bit of a challenge to your mental health or no was that- it was just the first time that i had the tools to understand that that's what it was probably is the first time that I viewed it against the backdrop of a phrase like mental health. I've been right. depressed plenty of times in my life, including in teenage and in my early twenties. And there's been plenty of pockets of mental instability for me because I've, the, so the feeling of failure tends to follow me around uh, and has sort of never gone away, I suppose. I'd say again, and that's why you can refer to it as a wiring problem. There's certainly been periods in my life where I got my degree or got my book published. And I'm freakishly young. Or I'm luminously doing well at stand up. Or there have been periods where I've been unable to deny that things are going well. But my default is to feel as if I'm in some way failing to match up to some idea mm. of myself that I have. So I've had plenty of times with depression, but it's only 
really uh, in the period in my mid thirties where I was getting divorced. It wasn't the divorce that triggered the depression, though. There were long periods for me in my first half of my thirties where I felt incredibly far removed from where and who I wanted to be as a person, and that can still happen. It does still happen to me, but I understand now even without having embarked upon therapy, I understand at least why those things are happening. Are those markers of success internal? Are they coming from where you want to be or where you think you should be? Or are you comparing yourself to other people, do you think? I think a lot of it is about comparing to other people, yes. Or comparing yourself to an illusory, theoretical version of yourself that could exist, right? Right, yeah. Like, I wrote loads of scripts, loads and loads of stuff I pitched in my 20s and 30s. It never happened. My dream was to be writing long form Netflix drama type stuff that never and never will happen. Uh, I would have liked to be a more successful comedian than I am. And yet, if you look at what I have got, there are loads and loads of people who would like to be where I am and would consider that aspirational. And I fully understand that. So I do know what I regard as failure would still be regarded as success by other people. So once you've had that mental process, you know you're not, in inverted commas, a failure you just haven't achieved the things that you imagined might be in the stars it's for about you. redrawing the stars i suppose yeah it's not even that much about comparison with other people i don't honestly mind other people doing better than me i think i mind myself doing less well than i convinced it myself goes back to that do. to playing darts with your brother in the same way it's you're genuinely excited and happy for them yes but it's about how it affects your relationship with yourself yes i, I think so i think that my biggest enemy or rival is the phantom version of myself that I convince myself should exist. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's this self-help book 
famous self-help book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, which I have referred to once or twice before, I think. One of the very few books in the sort of field of self-help and self-improvement which have really made an impact on me, really stayed with me. A set of tiny little sort of aphorisms, like Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, This Won't Matter in 10 Years, Take Time to Breathe. I can't remember most of them, but each one is just a, a couple of pages. So it's the sort of thing that you can digest a tiny little bit of wisdom and I used to carry it around with me for a while. Anyway, one that I distinctly remember was argue for your failings and they become yours. And I think it's true. If you go through life saying, oh, I always do this, I'm bound to mess this up. This is just like me. All these things which we, we all do, that narrative takes on quite a concrete form in your brain. And if you so if you self-deprecate enough, even as comedy, pretty soon your mind automatically takes you on that journey and you, in short, start to believe negative things about yourself, even if you just meant them as a joke initially. I think you, I mean, you often say, I mean, you even said earlier in this conversation, you've said about how certain things are beyond you now and will never happen for you now. And that is sort of the exact same thing. You're smiling. Because <laughs> I, that's smiling the because exact thing that you've just been I talking accept about. accept the charge, yeah. <laughs> I think a, a frustrating thing for me, about me, is that, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think I'm quite self-aware, so I'm able to identify the traps that my brain sets for me, and which I dig for myself, and like the one I've just described, I, I generally know quite well what's happening in my mind, but nonetheless not always able to sidestep mm. it. I have over the years got better at saying, right, this is one of those moments where your brain does this or that. We've had this before. We know roughly how to deal with it. But I it's difficult to stand outside your own head. You're trapped in your own head, obviously, forever. Going outside your own head just a little bit, you mentioned earlier about how um, we spoke about when you had that brief period of, of depression, which you then termed as depression, though you'd felt like that before and hadn't termed as depression. So was it just that the words about mental health were kind of in the zeitgeist then? Or like what changed in your circumstance? Well, it, it's a bigger question, this. I have a complicated relationship with the idea of depression and anxiety for that matter and i suppose the term uh, the term mental illness not metal illness that would be uh, a sort of lead poisoning Rust. or something yes yeah <laughs> look after your metal health um, <laughs> metal health especially in this sort of rain is as fragile as mental health but it's, it's less a key topic for us on this podcast perhaps uh, i've always had the sort of temperament that disposes itself to feeling sad panicking over-dramatising or catastrophizing failures. In other words, I have many of the hallmark behaviours of either depression or anxiety are things that are hardwired into my brain. But I hesitate to say oh, I am suffering from depression or even anxiety because I'm not entirely sure where an actual condition begins mm. and just what ends. your brain is like ends. Exactly. Of course, it would be quite easy for me to get a diagnosis in the same way it would be for everyone. But I suppose all I'm saying is, look, I'm a, certainly a jumpy, jittery, nervy person would I say I suffer from anxiety or I have anxiety I'm not sure because I know people who do say that and for them it is markedly more of a pathology than mine so I don't know are you being self-deprecating about mental illness Mark <laughs> I'm only saying that I've never quite been sure I've definitely been to some dark places and, and I've had sort of suicidal ideation and all that kind of thing I'm capable of very negative depressive phases of life but yeah I tend to feel as if they're fixable in a way that perhaps pathological depression anxiety aren't I suppose that's my answer I think we've come up for air I suppose because we've got a bit deep but I do want to talk about death <laughs> so let's just dive back down again hey Mark <laughs> well Michael you've come to the right place well I, I will say actually I hope my instinct is right here I think that people who uh, listen to this regularly are quite used to us laughing and joking it was certainly me joking about it so I think I'm mm. not I'm, I would rather this was a sort of uh, unexpectedly deep than just uh, us 
taking the piss out of each other because we do so much of that anyway. I may as well use this opportunity to uh, explore a bit. No, it's nice to explore different levels and different conversation topics. And that's why it's nice to talk to each other about things because generally we're the sort of like relief when we're talking to our guests and it's quite nice to kind of talk about things in a more serious way. Good balance. I think so, yes. Now back to death. Have you always been interested in death? Not interested, fascinated? What's the word you would use? Uh, yeah, I suppose interested is the word, but only in the sense that we're all interested in it. There are people who are fascinated by death in a sort of uh, fetishistic way, almost. Like they love goth stuff, for example, or I mean, I do love visiting graveyards and things because they fire my imagination, I suppose, as a writer or whatnot, and, or because they put your brain in a different space and so on. But that, none of that is what you'd call a fascination with death, I don't think. I suppose the word is a preoccupation with it, basically. I find it very difficult to separate myself from this knowledge that eventually I won't exist and that everything I've done will be kind of not wiped out exactly but you know the idea that everything ceases to exist in your own life in your own uh, experience of existence and eventually everything (laughs) my brain cannot compute and I understand that almost everyone else also I don't think I've stumbled on some special revelation here I know that nearly everyone alive cannot deal with that thought on some level because I don't think the human brain can picture his own non-existence but very few people seem to be that bothered by it in the way that I am I walk around every day unable to understand why other people aren't thinking about it as much as and of course there are good reasons like you can't be you've got to get on with stuff <laughs> I, I tell you what in answer to the actual question which is have you always been I can date it actually I did not have a traumatic loss of a loved one or anything like that other than you know grandparents and things but there wasn't a moment like that which might have been a softer way into the, you know, some people have maybe a formative death in the family or a pet even. though I did have pets that died, obviously. I didn't have immortal pets. <laughs> some people have rabbits that change colour. Have you heard about those? I certainly did have a hamster who, looking back, had several actors played by hamster like James Bond, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was not until university. I remember being at university, uh, lying in a in the single bed there. I shared a room with my friend Bennett in, this is my second year of university, so I'm 20 years old. And, and I remember lying in bed uh, having had a few drinks, which was still a new experience to me, I felt sort of tipsy in a pleasant way. I had friends, I had a friend in the next bedroom. My parents, uh, I just it was one of those golden moments in life where you think everything is great. And I almost literally said to myself, well, what's the catch? What am I not thinking about here? What am I missing? And somehow the follow-up thought to that was, oh, I'm going to die. Uh, um, I know it sounds, it sounds so <laughs> odd. And, and I was 20, of course, it was not an imminent threat as far as I knew and it is, I certainly have continued to live since then but I, I just I was filled with an overwhelming awareness that one day this would all end the moment was passing even as I experienced it like all moments and right. it hit me like a sledgehammer I felt physically sick at the idea of it I had to open a window I eventually went out and walked around a bit which doesn't help in a place like Cambridge because everything is fucking 700 years old <laughs> so <laughs> if anything you couldn't be more conscious of how many people have lived and died in an environment <laughs> like that yeah. it's a very very uh stereotypical undergraduate thing this of you know walking around in these cloisters thinking one day life will pass but nonetheless in this moment it it, it gave me this kind of wrenching terror and nausea of the kind that we should read about in novels at quite a lot university actually you know the the pure word angst german word Mm. or existential dread or this terror of existence stroke non-existence has been articulated a lot in art and poetry and song and all of it but that was the one moment the first moment in my life where it was actually like a dart going into my brain and heart. When we've spoken about it before, it's been quite focused on legacy, I suppose, but not in a kind of a poncy way, just in terms of what do you leave behind when you go? But I mean, at that time, was that what was in your mind or was it just the fact that this will be over? Well, 
if you want to know the truth of it... I wasn't expecting a lie. It wasn't like one of those Twitter things where it says wrong answers only. Yes. <laughs> which I, I never really know what to do with that, but I understand the, the vague idea of it. I, I think the probable reason that this hit me for the first time at 20, and I've touched on this a few times before, is that I did have some sort of vague religious convictions kind of up until then, mm. because I've been in the church choir. I went to church most of my teenage years, partly out of duty, out of uh, habit with my mum and all of it. I would have been one of these people that said, I'm not really a Christian, but yes, I do think there's a God. I think there's something... Adjacent. Yeah, I was Christian adjacent for a lot of the first 20 years uh, that I had on this planet. And that does give you a certain safety net. There's no doubt about it, even if you don't believe in a physical heaven or whatnot. And I don't think I had any very strong idea about that. And by the way, there will be people listening who are Christians or who believe in all sorts of stuff. And fair play, I envy it rather than disdaining it. Because certainly I think that's why I had a safety net vis-a-vis my relationship with the eternal. Because on some level I thought, and this is the root of the name of my new stand-up show, I would think this can't be it. You'll, you'll, you'll hear people say it even now, people with faith, I think, well, come on, there must there must be something else. This can't be all. And I think I did believe that. And then for whatever reason, that faith had kind of lapsed. I'd been exposed to a lot of new ideas at university. I Again, I'm not doing down anyone who maintains faith, but my first couple of years in that university environment had rewired my brain Um, away from mystical or religious faiths and what was left suddenly was this black hole into which I felt myself slipping really for the first time and and I've never talked about really any of this stuff in any detail really (laughs) I've certainly ranted about it and I've got got drunk and emotional about it but in answer to your legacy question which is a great question I think that I've revisited that feeling of horror many times since it was at night it was in bed the specific horror of not existing and of everything passing, the, the, the transience, the impermanence of everything, all, all those things, the impossibility of holding on to anything because of eternity just being a series of moments, all this business that you can't do much about. <laughs> uh, that's what my dad would say. He'd say, well, not a lot you can do about that, is it? <laughs> very much my dad's vibe that. It fixes it straight away, doesn't it? You just stop worrying. For someone who's influenced me so much, and in some ways my dad is the absolute opposite of me, you know, very little phases him because his approach will always be, well, it'll happen or it won't. And I've just never been that person. Like, for example, a most commonly said thing about death is, you won't know anything about it. You'll never know anything about it. That's the whole point. And that's exactly what terrifies me. Uh, there are ways that you can deal with it, of course. There are many ways you can be philosophical about the passing of years and about your time on Earth. But one of the ways that I deal with it is to put an enormous number of projects in my own way. So I think my attempt to build a legacy and my kind of raging desire to be remembered as widely and as well-loved as possible, all of it, it's to do with this. People often ask how and why I am so prolific, why I work in the driven way that I do, have so many projects, mm. create things constantly... I often flippantly say, oh, it's because I'm going to die one day, life's short. But I I think it actually is that. I think that on some level I am trying to respond to this existential threat that we all face by just absolutely cramming every second of my life with some sort of productive or creative effort. That's quite a professional response. But what about your personal? Like, what what does legacy mean in a personal way, if that makes sense? So not like, this is Mark and he wrote 15 books. Like, what does it mean to you in a personal way? Well, uh... Maybe somebody listening to the podcast can help me out here because once I saw on Twitter a tweet that someone had been at a funeral and they'd tweeted a picture of the order of service and there was a quotation on it and it said something like, from an actual writer, I thought it was Raymond Carver or something like that, but anyway, I've never been able to find it. But the import of the quote was something like, did he find what he wanted on this earth? Yes, he did. And what was it he wanted? To be loved, to feel himself loved. That was the vibe. It was very, I keep saying vibe, I'm 41. That was the, um, 
But anyway, the conceit of this short quote was essentially on, on your deathbed or at your funeral, if you are loved, have been loved, continue to be loved, then that's that's a win. That's all you really want as your legacy. And I basically believe that, I think. Mm-hmm. All I really want is to feel that throughout my life I was loved and that beyond it, people will remember me with love and it's quite emotional to this. Um, and that I will have made a positive difference, mattered to people in a positive way. And of course, it's paradoxical to talk about that when I've just said that I'm frightened of being dead and it'll be wiped out and everything. Mm. But that's all you can do, isn't it? I suppose. Every time I go around this mental merry-go-round at night, all I can really do is think of that in some abstract way you do live on in your deeds and people's memories of you and their love of you. And so try and amass as much of that as you can while you can. It is an emotional question, an emotive question. It's already been quite emotional. This. Do you think you do you think you've loved yourself? Um, well, I mean, there are certainly times when, God, this is as close as I've come to crying uh, while making any podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and not through frustration, like it is uh, yeah, not because of not because of the tech. Um, well, I think that I often bear in mind. Maybe this is from Don't Expect the Small Stuff, but I, uh, many times I have thought to myself that the trick is to give myself the same leeway and benefit of doubt as I routinely show to other people. Because whatever I, there are obviously lots of things I don't like about myself, but I do think that I'm quite generous in my assessment of people, give them every chance to prove me wrong, always look for the best in people, I think is the phrase. So it is. it would be good if I extended that kindness to myself. And I don't think consistently I have done that. And I can't really account for that. It's not like I haven't been in loving relationships in one. Now it's not like I. Uh, it's not like I've ever lacked love or support or all of the tools that I probably needed to be kind to myself. I've got better at it. Sometimes if I've done a really good day's writing or just looked after my kids well or done something, I will say to myself, "That was good. You did that well." I'll even vocalise it. I'll mutter to myself, "We did that well. We did that all right." I'm trying to get into that habit more for the same reason as what I said before. Positive affirmations, I do think, help to build up a kind of positive narrative for you in the same way negative ones do. So I'm I'm getting better at it, but I judge myself by harsher standards than I would judge anyone else alive. There's no doubt about that. I said earlier I was going to split the role model question into three, and we've kind of gone from childhood to middlehood, uh, whatever that bit's called, and to now as you are rapidly approaching um, your deathbed. Uh, so uh, <laughs> who do you look up to now? That was a real sign that we uh, are comfortable with each other because it's sort of a, a risky remark, you know, given everything that's gone before. Given what we've just been yeah, talking I, about. I could have yeah, t- <laughs> easily could have tipped me over the edge. I thought it might land. <laughs> at this point, we know each other well. You wouldn't have done that in our first chat. No, um, not at all. Who do I look up to now? Well, my dad is still one of the answers. He has remained a constant. He's slightly unwell at the moment and it's on my mind constantly. The reasons that he inspired me I suppose still remain the reasons right his kindness complete selflessness complete lack of ego complete instinctive generosity to other people his ability to sort of just be in the background making things better for other people in the way that a good teacher will and he has been a teacher all his career but also in the way that a good human will and I've never stopped admiring that of course I've seen a lot of my dad in life that's not a coincidence that people often choose their fathers it's inevitable that it's a big influence upon us but beyond him it's not an easy question I mean there are a lot of people, and Tim uh, Key is an obvious example. A lot of people listening will be familiar with him. He's a long-time friend and collaborator of mine. There are a lot of things about him that I admire professionally and also personally. Actually, yeah, I think what I'd say is that among my friends, 
and including people I've met in recent years, there are loads of individual qualities that I aspire to and look up to. But probably there's not one person that has all of them. I think as I've got older, perhaps as you get older in general, you do start thinking less in terms of, I want to be that guy, that's my role model, and more, what can I learn from this person? What can I learn from that person? It's kind of like the it takes a village, except it's kind of you're building the village. Precisely that, yes. When I think about my friends, my close friends, both male and female, and however they uh, identify, there are things about almost all of them that I... You know, there's something from each person I could pick that I'd want to be. And I think as I've got older, I've more consciously thought, well, consciously or unconsciously thought, what can I learn from this person? What can I learn from this? Even people I'm not close friends with. I think you can learn something about how to be from most people you have uh, prolonged interactions with. Well, I think over the last 29 episodes, the last 29 weeks, I think we've learned probably something from every single person we've spoken to. Absolutely. And actually, I would say, and again, I don't think, I probably can't think uh, in the heat of it of a concrete example. But in terms of people that I look up to, I would say and I've said before on this podcast and I've said it on stage that I don't want as I get older to be resistant to new ideas I don't want to be resistant to change I want to continue to interrogate and learn so I am constantly looking up to as it were people quite a bit younger than me on social media obviously people like Greta Thunberg but much less stellar examples Mm -hmm. than that just people who I think I, I believe that I can learn from younger people than myself and i constantly do and if you stop believing that i think you're in trouble yeah i think that kind of leads us quite nicely into our final question although i'm kind of loath to end this because i've been having a lovely time but you probably should it's been really good but it's there's no way it's not going to be long <laughs> three qualities i don't need to ask the question but should i we always ask at the end of this episode about the three qualities you would build into a person to set them up for the world obviously build a bear please sponsor us but i'm not going to give them any more free promo from now on it has just occurred to me and it's too late and i don't really have the expertise to do this either but i suppose coop could have done it one a brilliant thing to do would have been to set my zoom backdrop so that it was a build a bear workshop just for this one moment well it's the sort of thing we could do during our break during the next four or five weeks we That's can right. set that kind I, of stuff i reckon up, it would take we? me about four weeks to do that actually yes <laughs> <laughs> so what are the three qualities you would build into a person so obviously if anything i've had almost too long to think think about this uh, question over the past couple of weeks once we decided that we were chatting uh, because I thought back over a lot of the answers if I'd done this on day one of our podcast I would have said empathy for sure empathy is probably the most common answer we've had that the most times yeah yeah it's the winner and that's I still do believe it one of my most passionately held beliefs is that without empathy without the uh, faculty and the willingness to understand what people are thinking and feeling you barely exist <laughs> you, yeah. you are not really a person you're just a cell in it but anyway because empathy's come up so often i've tried to challenge myself to go beyond that you just opened a thesaurus is what you've done <laughs> no i didn't just find three <laughs> synonyms for it Michael. <laughs> so i'm gonna go with ones which have been slightly less each one of these or two of them at least are empathy adjacent um the first one weirdly is i don't know if it is weird but it doesn't come up a lot but just love quite simply the word love because and oddly this does bring me back a bit to the uh christian message that i no longer really subscribe to but you know when you strip away all of the superstition and whatever else is unappealing about religious faith the message of the bible is you know to love your neighbor to love other people as you love yourself Mm, to treat every other person as if they are of equal value to yourself i don't think there is anything more fundamental to do on the earth than that really you are here to connect with interact with other people and of course i also mean it in all senses romantic love love of your your pa- your passions Self. yourself whatever whatever you love love it fully and properly fiercely i think in this life because you know it's sort of a combination of what um we've had the word passion before empathy has come up a lot and then last week jess foster q said tolerance which i think is a nice way of thinking about yeah. empathy because tolerance means 
you understand their position, you can empathize with their position and you accept it. But love kind of takes that one step further, doesn't it? In terms of embracing it yourself and everyone else around you in a way. That's right. And I think it's the reason we don't use the word. Well, the thing is we use the word all the time. Love you, love love at the end of an email, love on a greeting card. Mm. So you, you rarely feel the word love in your bones in the way it's meant to be in the Bible or in its original, of, you know, giving everything you have to make someone else's life better, whether right. you actually fancy them or adore them or what. So I, I mean love both in a, the sense of looking after other people, using yourself to make them better, but also I think everyone should love stuff on this earth. I don't care if you'd like football like me or red wine or Doctor Who or other stuff that I know nothing about. I admire people who fully blazingly love stuff rather than being mm. slightly too cynical mm. and detached to ever feel that because that's what we're here for, for, to feel things. That's lovely. And then your second one? Now, this is something I don't think I have really much of. This is something I'd like to build more of into the bear that is me. <laughs> You're more of an otter, but okay, cool. Yeah, or a heron. I was repeatedly compared to a heron on Toastmaster, and there are memes about that now. <laughs> Courage, I suppose, is the word. We have had this before, but not that often. Courage, I mean, when it's come up before, people have said not in a physical sense, not in a bad guy sense, and of course I do mean that. What I mean by courage is being able to imagine... I mean, I'd love more physical courage. I'd love to be able to walk out into the middle of a traffic and save someone. Or, you know, I would love my instincts to be less physically cowardly, which I think they are. I don't think I'm jumping into a river to save someone. I just don't think in that moment I'm that guy. When uh, there was a footballer revived on the pitch very recently and he appeared to have died in a horrifying moment, I don't think I'm the guy that gives him CPR. I, I don't think I'm, so I would like that, but it's not entirely the courage I mean. What I mean, as other guests have member courage, is... Be able to make changes that are difficult in life. Be able to be honest about who you are, what you want, even if that might be difficult for other people to accept. I don't think I'm very good at that. I've caused myself a lot of trouble in my life by not being open with myself about what I needed and wanted and or not being able to voice it to other people. Courage in yourself is quite an interesting concept in terms of like being brave enough to do something that you are scared of doing personally rather than jumping into, into traffic, that kind of stuff. Yeah, everyone knows that, you, to use another uh, famous self-help title, you have to feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. Everyone knows that courage isn't about avoiding fear, but somehow leaning into it, to use your phrase. And I don't think I'm very good at that. I will always put obstacles between myself and courageous acts. I will always try and make things better in incredibly circuitous, difficult ways, rather than just saying, hey there's a problem here to the wrong person. And again, that's been a root of a, quite a lot of trouble I've had in my life. And I, I would say that anyone starting out in life needs to have it instilled into them. You have to be 100% fully yourself, which is a recurring motif of this podcast. And that often takes a lot of courage. We've heard stories of people on this podcast for whom it's taken immense courage. And I don't think I've ever found those levels of courage entirely. But there's still time. Yet. Yet. And your third one. Well, this... Sounds like a cop-out, but it's not if I elucidate it properly. It is, I think the word is, we may have had this once before, humanity. Always be thinking about what it means to be a human and that everyone else is a human and exert everything you have in you to do that the best way you can. For example, showing humanity, this is why it's a similar thing to empathy. Helping someone that you don't like, stopping in the street to help someone you know that might be in trouble, I don't know, donating to someone even though it's not a cause you give a shit about. But there are a million ways every day. And they don't have to be financial. They have to be emotional. There are so, so many ways in which you can use your sense of yourself as a human to enrich the human experience of other people. And the way to do that is to be always fully human. Live 
in a fully human way and that I think that involves thinking about what other people are feeling but it's also about looking deeply into yourself saying what do I need what do I want and and then how can I help other people to to, to get that yeah it's a nice idea that's a lovely thought I, I, I think that being human is a very complicated famously um <laughs> difficult task which often feels as if it's getting away from us that it's too difficult and even that thought and feeling is itself part of humanity so you know as a closing note, I suppose I'd want to say for all of the problems that I've put in my own way, for all of the doubts I have about myself and difficulties I have with myself, I never lose sight of the fact that it is really hard being a person and you've just got to have your best shot at it. Mm. And that involves use your humanity like a weapon, but a weapon for good. Do good with it. Let yourself be yourself and then try to bleed that goodness some way into the universe it's a lovely way to finish well i'll stop here and say thank you very much to you mark for joining us and I think um, I, someone should stop me because i really have said a lot of words <laughs> and some of them i might look back on with i always have to obviously they're edited by cooper and i listen back to them and i f- will feel extremely odd listening back to this i think but we'll see well we'll stop here we'll hand back over to mark and michael of the future but thank you for joining us mark uh, good luck mark and michael in the future okay bye <laughs> bye uh, and that was quite literally me it was you and me i was there too oh yeah but let's face it uh the headline is i talked about a lot of stuff there it was really (laughs) nice though i think really lovely to kind of hear your thoughts on things properly because like we said during the podcast we're often the kind of we jump in with light relief here and there but it's nice to hear your actual thoughts i think we tried to get away from that a bit and you were a very good very sensitive and intelligent interviewer i must say i've seen it before but it's a bit different when you're actually in the hot seat you've got a gently probing way of asking things which is uh i've often referred to as a gentle prober i'd also knew you were going to (laughs) take some of the gloss off that compliment by saying something exactly like that we've been doing this it's probably a good thing we are having a break because we're starting to anticipate each other's sentences so yes on that so our break will last for the month of july we will miss you terribly but we are going to be filling that entire month with some more records for our return in august so we will be coming back to your ears in august we'll also continue to do the patron uh, of course and in fact we need to welcome a couple of new yes patron subscribers this week we have the lovely leah and james and leah and james obviously have to have the best monday out of everybody so happy monday to the pair of you yes you have as they say one Monday this week and they will also be part of the community because we'll carry on talking to everybody during July on Patreon so if you want to still talk to us about lots of bits and bobs you can still find us on Patreon which is at patreon.com forward stroke mankind podcast through the month of July before we return yes you'll also be able to as always correspond with us at mankindpodcast at gmail.com 30 episodes is quite a lot I think part of the reason we've continued to throw ourselves at it is to me surprising amount of lovely feedback that we've had I don't think I expected the podcast to um we were talking about this when we were together physically i think i've been surprised by the force that some people have responded to it with and i, I find that really gratifying thank you i think from us for listening to us for 30 at least 30 hours of your life thank you yeah thank you for listening responding supporting it in all the ways you have it has been the first time i've ever done a, a podcast of my own and i suppose for you as well michael yeah. it's the first time we've undertaken anything like this and it's been not just fun but really really gratifying um as an experience so looking forward to coming back yes definitely helped us we're gonna miss you but we'll see you very soon have a lovely july and we'll be back with you in august bye-bye see you then hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 